Would you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? Picking up where we left off last week with verse 14 down through the end of the paragraph. For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own, from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time in your word this morning as we come to it with it both reprove and rebuke and correct and encourage, bring joy to our hearts as we have already experienced in corporate worship, as we have joined together in recognizing that Jesus alone is king and we together, the body of Christ, trust in him. Oh God, would you give us grace to trust you more? As we turn to the subject of suffering and judgment this morning, we recognize that without the faith that we have in Christ and our trust in him, we are, would be incapable of dealing with the suffering that this world brings. But your great provision for us is enough. We confess that this morning. We believe that. We pray, God, you would now instruct us in it. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. This morning's sermon is simply entitled Suffering and Judgment. These are our subjects this morning. This is not a lighthearted subject. Uh, this is one that will cut deeply for many. As you may have experienced suffering in your life, and as you very likely know, those who are still under the judgment of God. But as we continue to walk through the two books of First and Second Thessalonians, there will be somber and sober moments for us, and this will be one of them. As I was preparing this sermon this week, it was impossible for me not to see in my mind's eye the same images that so many of you have likely witnessed online over the last, or on uh, television over the last week and a half or so of men and women and boys and girls by the thousands crowding into an Afghanistan airport, trying to leave under threat of severe persecution, clinging to the sides of airplanes, some falling to their death hoping to flee from the suffering that they know will come. Now, I want to be really clear with my opening illustration. And so while I don't often wade into politics, I'm going to at least dip my toe. America has a responsibility there. We have a responsibility not only to see our own citizens to safety and I pray that our administration will continue to do that and will redouble their efforts along with other nations in the world that have a presence there. 
but likely also to see to safety those who have assisted us over the last two decades in that place and to provide some type of uh, refugee status to them. Mixed with that, however, have been a call by many, and I would call all of us as a congregation today, to pray for the Christians that are in Afghanistan as Afghanistan has been a place where the gospel has been spreading over the last two decades. And so we should pray for those Christians that are there. But mixed in with that call to prayer have been a call for some that we would provide escape for believers. That those who would have come to faith, not American citizens that are in that nation or not necessarily those uh, who would have helped during that wartime effort, but just those who had come to faith. But because persecution will come upon them uh, by the radical Islamists that are in that nation, that somehow we should provide some type of escape for those Christians. Now, whether our government or governments around the world decide to do that or not, as I've prepared this sermon, I was led to ask this question in my own mind. If Paul was writing this letter today to churches in Afghanistan, to Christians who can see on the horizon vast persecution, who are already living under persecution. There is no, even though there's been a great American presence there, there is no open Christian church in that part of the world. Does not exist. There are thousands of Christians. They are just, they practice their faith underground. But I wonder if Paul were to write to them, would he tell them to go to the airport and try to leave? Or would he tell them to endure suffering for the sake of Jesus, knowing that this is but a temporary affliction? Because that seems to be what Paul, not only to the church at Thessalonica, but in many other cases, wrote and encouraged Christians. So many of us, I believe, look at scenes like that and our heart goes out to the believers that are there, and rightly it should then we automatically jump to trying to solve the issue by removing someone from suffering and persecution because we have developed a poor theology of suffering. We have viewed suffering in the wrong way. And this is human nature. It is human nature to think that suffering equates to judgment. That when something goes bad in my life, and this isn't just a Western American idea, this is a human idea. This was prevalent in uh, first century Israel where Jesus was dealing with those who viewed sickness as a sign of God's judgment and riches as a sign of God's blessing. This is very common in humanity. That we think when we suffer, it's because we've done something wrong and we should do everything we can to escape that suffering and return to some type of blessed life. I'd like for this scripture today to inform us, in some ways maybe correct us, to having a right theology of suffering, a right theology of judgment and their relationship with one another. And by the time we get to the end of this, here's what I hope we will see, that if we endure suffering for the sake of Christ, there is still nothing to fear in this life because of the hope that we have in him. So let's start with the suffering church. For you, Brothers, Paul writes in verse 14, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. 
For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So this is the second time that Paul has said uh, in as many chapters that the church at Thessalonica has become imitators. The first time he says this is in his um, opening thanksgiving and prayer for the church. In verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1, Paul writes, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to the all of the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Paul began his letter by stating that they had become imitators of the mission team and of the Lord that by joining in with their suffering, and at this point, um, through his second missionary journey, Paul and his mission team had experienced much suffering. And a few weeks ago, when I preached that sermon, we looked at some of that suffering that Paul had experienced, even there in Thessalonica. And he says, you've joined in with us, you've become imitators of us by the way that you've suffered, and because you've joined in this suffering. You're also joined in with the Lord. This was a personal imitation. He's saying you've become like us. You've become like the Lord. Now though, in chapter two, it is a corporate imitation. Paul is speaking to them as a church and saying for you brothers, and that's what the word means, that word brothers, brothers and sisters, the group of body of believers the way that we need to understand that. So he's not just writing to some people, but all who are in faith that are a part of this congregation in Thessalonica. He says, brothers, brothers and sisters, congregation, you have become imitators of the congregation of God, the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. So he's saying, not only are you imitators of us and of the Lord, as in verse, as in chapter one, but now you've become imitators even of other congregations specifically the church in Judea who had suffered many things. And he says, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Now, we'll, we need to think just historically about why Paul would write this about the Judean church and what was going on uh, during the first century spread of the gospel at really the heart, at the home base where this all began. The church experienced, the church in Israel experienced several waves of persecution, some of which are recorded for us in the book of Acts, some of which aren't. The first wave of persecution for the first century church came at the hands of the man writing this letter. Paul, if you're not familiar with his background, was a Pharisee. He was, he called himself in another letter, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a rising star and put in charge of stamping out this ragtag group of rebels that were considering themselves followers of what they called the way, Christianity. And Paul persecuted them, even leading to the first Christian martyr. Paul stood by. Stephen was stoned. Then Paul went about uh, his his uh, time of persecution, going from city, city to city, dragging people out of homes and gatherings, placing them in jail, we're told, until he has an encounter with the Lord and his, his heart has changed and he's converted and he is now a follower of the way. But when we get to Acts chapter 12, which takes place know, about eight or 10 years before this is being written, we, we see a second wave of persecution following that of Paul. 
In Acts chapter 12, we get this little piece of history. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So that first wave of persecution was the hand of Paul. Now we're here in the early part of the 40s AD and there's a man named Herod. Now this isn't the same Herod uh, who Jesus had met. This would actually be his nephew. This is Herod Agrippa who is, is very much desire for the people to like him. And here's what he found out the people liked. The people liked when he persecuted those that the people didn't like. And Christians were among that. And so he has John, the, or he has James, the brother of John, put to death. He, he arrests Peter, ultimately going to turn Peter over to the people in the same way that Jesus was turned over to the people and crucified. So this is happening maybe eight, eight or 10 years before uh, before Paul is writing this letter, it's kind of a second wave. He ultimately dies. The end of Acts chapter 12 tells us of his death. And then we, we later in Acts get another ruler who Paul ends up dealing with, whose name is Felix. But in between there is a guy named uh, Cuminus. And Cuminus only reigned for four years, but historians tell us he also persecuted the church. The third wave, now he reigned from 48 to 52, right as Paul's writing this letter. So in the midst of Paul writing this letter, he's thinking about his friends and those he loves that are back in Judea that are in the midst of persecution. Now, why give this little three-minute history lesson? Because Paul is, he, he is, his heart is for the Gentiles who he is proclaiming the gospel to here in Thessalonica and in Corinth where he's writing this from. But at least part of his mind is back in Israel with his people who were in that moment under persecution. And Paul says, you've become imitators of them. You've joined in their suffering. You're suffering in the same way from your countrymen, from the Gentiles and Thessalonica, that my friends in Judea are suffering right now at the hands of their own people. So the, it is not just individuals within the church that suffers. It is the church of God as a whole that suffers. This is why this section I've entitled the, the suffering church. Because for us to have a right theology of suffering, we must understand that when we suffer, we suffer together both within a local church context and a global church context. So let's just think about those two things together for a moment. We are the local expression of God's people in this place. That's the way that we think about the local church. Now, there are other local expressions of God's people here in Suffolk and in Hampton Roads, and we praise God for gospel witnesses wherever it pops up. But for those of us that gather here at 2896 Bridge Road in Suffolk, Virginia, we are this local expression. And so this is the local church, the, the gathering of people here. And when one of us suffers, here's the way the relationship within the church is supposed to look. We suffer together. You're not meant to go through suffering alone. 
You're not meant to have to deal with the trials and tribulations of this life or even persecution from the world by yourself. Don't feel like you have to hide these things. And this is one of the ways that we go wrong with our theology of suffering is that we think we have to deal with it alone, that nobody else is gonna understand it, that nobody else is going to be able to identify with it or have empathy towards us, that nobody's gonna wanna help us or maybe even that people are gonna blame us. Remember, the human way of thinking about suffering is that when we suffer, it's because we've done something bad. And so maybe we even think that the church is gonna blame us for our suffering, that we're not gonna find empathy, but that we're gonna find condemnation. May it never be within the people of God that when someone comes to us with their own suffering that we say, oh, well, you earned that. You brought that on yourself, didn't you? Oh, can't we join arms together and say, brother and sister, when you suffer, I suffer with you. When I suffer, you suffer with me. Now, this is relatively a large church. There are a few hundred people that call this local expression of God's people their congregation. And so you may not know somebody sitting on the other side of the room from you, but we connect you through small groups. And one of the things, one of the four things small group does is puts us in community with each other. And when we're in community with each other, that opens us up to suffering together. You may say, well, that does not sound very appealing at all. Why would I wanna go to a small group if it means I'm gonna suffer with somebody? Because that's what the Bible expects us to do. We're practicing obedience when we say, brother, sister, if you suffer, I suffer. I'm right there with you. I'm in this with you together. This is one of the things we must correct within our theology of suffering is that we don't do it alone. That just as the church, the congregation in Thessalonica suffered, they suffered together with the church at Judea. The second correction we need in our theology of suffering is when those in faith suffer, it is not judgment, but it's actually sanctifying. You see, maybe we don't see it as suffering. We don't see suffering as judgment, but we see suffering as somehow some type of neutral thing that we must endure. Listen, suffering isn't a neutral thing that we must endure in this world. The Bible speaks of suffering as sanctification. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter five writes it like this. He says, in the days of his flesh, this is talking about Jesus, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. This is talking about the garden of Gethsemane. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Even Jesus learned, put that in quotation, we're talking about the humanity of Jesus, learned obedience to God through suffering. That Jesus, the night before his crucifixion, cries out to the Father, if you can remove this cup from me, would you do it? And the Father says, no. And why? Why does this happen? Because it's a demonstration to us that our suffering teaches us obedience. Our suffering helps us to learn to be more in tune with what God is doing in our lives. Those who are, let, let's just take it right now to this morning what we experience. Those who are suffering in this room right now, saying that last hymn that we sang together, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Those who are suffering in this room right now, you sang that from a depth within your soul. 
because you've learned through that suffering, hopefully, to be obedient to God. As Jesus demonstrated to us in the garden, that suffering is sanctifying, that it's not just this neutral thing that we must endure, but the Bible actually writes about it as a positive thing. Number three, we have to change our understanding of what it really means to be blessed in this life. If we're going to have a biblical understanding of suffering, we have to change what it means to be blessed. We, our culture, you see a little less of this now. I guess it's kind of run its course as most things do in culture. But several years ago, it was very popular when something good would happen in your life, and you still see it some, some kind of material blessing would come into your life, something that other people would see as good, we would label it, right, as blessed. But, and, and on the surface, there's nothing wrong with that. It's, there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, God has, God has blessed me with a wonderful family. God's blessed me with the things that I need. This, these are biblical ideas. But it is so shallow to think we're only blessed when things go right. And the New Testament tends to turn that idea on its head and say, actually, true blessing is we find not in good times, but true blessing is found in suffering. So to change our understanding of what it means to be blessed means to see that joy and suffering and peace and persecution, contentment in periods of want, comfort during times of loss, that this is what it really means to be blessed. Look, we have to stop defining the blessing of God according to the way the world would define blessing and recognize that some of the greatest blessings we will ever experience in life is in our lowest moments of pain and trial and sorrow. This is why James begins his letter to the church by saying, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. When we suffer, we find blessing in the Lord because it makes us more into his image. The fourth change we need in our theology is that we must recognize that suffering directly connects us to Jesus. If we go to Romans chapter 8 and think about the Apostle Paul writing in this idea to that church, he says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I don't think anyone in this room would deny the idea that Jesus suffered. He suffered greatly at the hands of sinful men. This is the story of the gospels in the New Testament, the persecution and suffering and ultimate death of Jesus Christ on a sinner's cross, the one person in humanity that never deserved it, received such a heinous death. And yet, we are called to identify with Jesus by how we suffer with him. Paul goes so far as to link it to our ultimate salvation that's the way that we suffer. Now, here's what he's saying. I don't want, to, I don't want us to get another bad theology. That the way that we suffer proves, it's evidence. This is what he means here. The way that we suffer is evidence of our relationship with Jesus. It's identifying us with Jesus. And it is a way of us having assurance that we will be glorified with him. That we will one day be fully saved and removed from sin and death and suffering of this world. 
suffering connects us to Jesus in, in a very real and tangible way that we share in that which our Lord and Savior also suffered. So before we move to judgment, let me just wrap up this section because this is really a sermon in two parts that come together at the end. Just wrap this up. There was a period of time during what was known as the patristics, the early church fathers, where this, the idea of suffering was so embraced that there was a move to, to, to try to suffer, even to the point of martyrdom. There was a move within some sections of that uh, area of, era of church history where, where people were actually looking to and trying to be martyred. Listen, that's not the encouragement today. I'm not telling you to go out in the world and pick a fight and look for suffering. I think sometimes Christians do that. Christians sometimes want to go out and, and make something happen and then look back on it and be like, oh, look, they're persecuting me and I'm suffering. No, you, you were kind of a jerk and you're getting kind of what you deserve for that, right? We don't go looking for suffering. We don't go looking for persecution. We don't go looking for martyrdom. But I think the biblical understanding of suffering means that when it comes, we recognize it for what it truly is, a temporal affliction that increases our sanctification and connects us to Jesus. So, so let's not ostracize and marginalize the suffering amongst us. Let's not hide our suffering in ourselves, but let's openly embrace the fact that we will suffer in this life and we should do so joyfully together as we, the church of God, become more like our Savior. Second, the, measure, the full measure of sin and present wrath. Now, verses 15 and 16 Paul is specifically going to address those who are persecuting the church. Now, primarily he's going to do that by listing a set of indictments, five indictment points and a pronouncement of judgment against the Jewish people who were persecuting the Judean church. But we must be careful to not view these two verses as anti-Semitic. And to do that, to have a right understanding of these verses, we have to back up to verse 14 and remember that Paul says the same thing is happening to you, Gentiles, from your own kinsmen. So while this is a specific indictment against those first century Jewish people who are persecuting the church in Judea, this ultimately is a worldwide indictment of any who stand contrary to the gospel. Because it was not just the Jewish people in Judea who were persecuting Christians. It was also the Gentile kinsmen of the Thessalonians who were persecuting them there in that city. So Gentiles outside of Christ are equally guilty of these indictments. They're just seen, Paul is just using his own people as the spotlight of how those who reject Christ are still, have, have filled up their measure of sin and still under the wrath of God. So let's look at these five points of indictment and then the pronouncement of judgment. First, it's the beginning of verse 15. He says, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. So this indictment really is 1A and 1B. 1A is who killed the Lord Jesus. 1B is who killed the prophets. Now it's easy for us to see that these are the ones who killed the Lord Jesus. By the way, shared responsibility, speaking to that 
previous point, shared responsibility between Jews and Gentiles. Because the Jewish people in Jerusalem, when Jesus was crucified, needed some Gentile Roman help to do it, and they found it in spades, okay? So you have both Jews and Gentiles responsible, but Paul looks at his own people, places the responsibility at their feet because they were the ones awaiting for the Messiah and missed it. They were the ones who should have known who Jesus was and missed it. Now we go into Matthew chapter 23, which we're going to refer to several times during this section, because Jesus says some of the same things during his earthly ministry that Paul says now. In Matthew 23, he's pronouncing woe and judgment of the spiritual leaders of Israel. Listen to this one, starting in verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Jesus looks at the religious elite of the day and says exactly what Paul is saying here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is they were responsible for the death of the prophets. Now, Jesus or Paul post crucifixion ties the death of Jesus to that as well. And what Jesus says in Matthew 23 is you 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 decorate these tombs and you can go to Israel today Lord willing some of us are going to go to Israel uh, at the end of January some of us went a few years ago and there are there are tombs of the prophets that are there large and whitewashed and well cared for and Jesus says you you take care of these tombs of the prophets as if you weren't this direct descendants of those who murdered these people who killed these prophets, who persecuted them, who rejected their words. Jesus directly ties the work of the Pharisees to the work of the previous generations. And just as Paul does here in 1 Thessalonians 2, speaks an indictment against them. You killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. Now remember, this isn't just, while Paul is using the Jews as an example of that persecution, we can take a step back and see that those who oppose the truth of Christ, those who oppose the message of Scripture, which is the message of the prophets, that all of them are responsible for the death of Jesus and the death of the prophets. By rejecting their words, we have killed them. The second indictment is, and, and the middle part of that verse, and drove us out. This word that is translated in, uh, in English, and drove us out, means f- to be physically expelled w- with a connotation of persecution. This wasn't just, Paul isn't just saying, you asked us nicely to leave and so we left, Right? This is, you literally threw us out. You laid hands on us to remove us from the city, physically expelling us. And we know this from the story of Acts. Even here in Thessalonica, Paul was removed from the city, a great uprising. The Jewish leaders there in that city caused an uprising amongst the Gentile leaders of that city, ultimately leading to a persecution that expelled Paul and Barnabas and Timothy, the mission team, they had to leave by cover of night. And this happened in numerous cities. They were driven out. 
There are going to be those in the world who seek to marginalize the mission of God, who want to push the message of the church to the fringe. Now remember, they've already rejected Jesus and the prophets. They've already rejected the word of God, but they don't wanna give the word of God a clear hearing in the public square, so we wanna marginalize it. Now, just quickly in our day, that's happening and we know it's happening, we can see it. We can, we can see the message of Christianity continually more and more marginalized in our society, but let's stop acting like that's something new. It happened in the first century, okay? That we're, we're, this isn't something new and unheard of or not even something that the Bible would speak to. The Bible clearly speaks to this idea that as we go forward with the gospel, there are going to be those that try to push that message out, maybe even doing so through persecution physically expelling those who would bring the truth of the gospel. We have missionaries around the world. Many of them can tell stories about being physically expelled from towns and cities and even nations because the world, this is what the world does. It marginalizes the gospel mission. Third indictment and displeased God there in the middle of verse 15. He says they, they displeased God. Now this is, this is, transitioned now from rejecting Christ and marginalizing his message to the actual character of those who are doing so. And the best way that Paul could, in such a succinct way, deal with the character of those who are persecuting the church and causing the church suffering and rejecting the message of the church is to simply say that their actions displease God. The idea of pleasing God goes all the way back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament speaks often about the character of those who are follow God and, and who desire to live in holy relationship with God. And the New Testament clarifies that for us by saying we can't do that on our own. Jesus does it in our place and provides the opportunity then for us to do it. So knowing that, Paul looks at those who are persecuting the church and makes what some may say is a blanket statement, but is absolutely true. And that is that anyone outside of Jesus lives a life that displeases God, period. So there's no such thing as a person who pleases God and yet doesn't know Christ. Back in Romans chapter eight, Paul writes about this same idea. He says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh, notice this, cannot please God. So, and this is prevalent in the Western church, this idea that because people are nice and seem good to us, we often talk about our neighbors and family members in this way. Well, they don't believe in Jesus, but they're, they're, they're really a good person. Folks, no, they're not. And maybe you're sitting in here today and you say, you know, I don't really believe in Jesus, I don't really have faith in Jesus, I like the community of the church, but I'm, I'm, I'm really a good person. Hear the truth of scripture today. No, you're not. You are either in Christ and therefore can live a life that is pleasing to God, or you are outside of Christ, your mind is still fixed on the things of the flesh, and you cannot please God. Because outside of Christ, it is impossible for us to please God. The fourth indictment. 
the end of verse 15, the beginning of 16, and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So this isn't just marginalization of the gospel message, but actually opposition to the gospel message. And Paul sees this as an opposition to all mankind because the gospel alone is how mankind is saved. And so he says, you're opposing mankind. (laughs) You're opposing all people everywhere. You're opposing humanity because you're hindering us from speaking about salvation. So we have these indictments and then Paul wraps them all up in the fifth one. In the middle of verse 16, so as always to fill up the measure of their sin. Now this speaks very closely to, to the same thing that Jesus says in Matthew 23, where Jesus pronounced this judgment, right? This woe on the scribes and Pharisees, the religious elite, and says that you're just like your fathers who killed the prophets. And then in verse 32, he says, you fill up then the measure of your father. So Jesus is looking at the generations of those Jewish people who should have known because of the message of the prophets and rejected anyway and just says generation after generation, we're filling up this cup of sin. And this is the same thing the world has done. The world continues to fill up the cup of sin, their own sin, and then here's what we do. We pass that sin on down to generation after generation telling people and convincing people that they can live according to their own way and not the way that pleases God, filling up the full measure of their sin. And then the judgment comes at the end of 16, but wrath has come upon them at last. This is what Paul says. You filled that, they filled that cup up to the point where wrath is here at last. And this again mirrors something we see in Matthew 23. At the end of that section, Jesus says, therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that you may come all the, uh, so that you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakai, but whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Let's take what Jesus is saying to influence and help us to understand what Paul is saying when he writes, but wrath has come upon them at last. What Jesus is telling those religious elite of the day that because of his ministry, right? Because he is going to his death, he knows the father will resurrect him from the dead, that judgment is coming. This is known as inaugurated eschatology, meaning something began in one day and will be fully consummated, will be fully known later. That one of the things that happens when Jesus dies on the cross, is raised from the dead, is is that Jesus marks the beginning of the end. People often want to look at things happening in our world today and be like, oh, here's how we know it's the end. Look at all these things happening. Listen, every Christian for the last 2,000 years should be able to say that about their time period because it's what Jesus and the apostles said about theirs. Here's here's the truth. Since, Since the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, we have been in the end. This has been the end the whole time. And so this inauguration of the wrath of God sits on all who disbelieve. 
sits on all who are still under the penalty of sin, which is death and eternal separation from God. Those who are under wrath now will find final judgment to come on all who do not repent. Now, this isn't Paul writing off the Jewish people. We don't have time to do it, but we could go to, there's three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11, where Paul holds out some hope for new birth and new life for many ethnic Israelites. And we're still seeing the fruit of that in some ways 2,000 years later. So there's, he's not, this is not a pronouncement of, of final judgment on all But this is a clear statement that there are those who are under the wrath of God now. And if they fail to repent and turn towards Jesus, they will be under the wrath of God for all eternity. So what? If through Christ I am being saved from the wrath of God, I have no need to fear the temporary suffering brought about by those still under his wrath. I told you this is two sermons that come together at the end. Let me start at the end and work backwards. We are born children of wrath. If you're not in Christ today, understand something. You are either a child of God because of faith in Jesus Christ, or you are what the Bible calls a child of wrath. You are outside of Christ. You are under the wrath of God, deserving punishment for your sin, which is death and eternal separation from God. This is who you are. This is who we were all, what we were all born into. But... Jesus provides a way for us to escape the wrath of God by taking it on himself on the cross, dying in our place so that we might live. So we, those who are alive in Christ, are no longer under the wrath of God, yet the world still is. And those who are under the wrath of God will bring about suffering in the life of Christians. And not only individuals and peoples who are under the wrath of God, but this fallen world that we still find ourselves living in will cause suffering in our lives. But because we are saved, we have no need to fear this temporal suffering. There is no need for us to... (coughs) There is no need for us to wring our hands over the suffering that comes in this life if we have a right understanding first of who we are in Christ and then what results that suffering brings about for us. For the sake of time, skip the Romans 3 passage. Go look right to the Romans 8. I want you to, read, I want you to hear this Romans 8 passage because Anytime I talk about suffering, I often go to this passage with people either in sermons or individually because here's what I know is happening. There are likely people here saying, man, I really want to believe this is true today. But life's hard right now. You don't understand the loss that I've experienced. You don't understand the pain that I'm in. You don't understand the diagnosis that I have. You you just don't understand how bad things are. And I began with that opening illustration of, of extremely persecuted Christians in a very visible part of the world right now. And if we put ourselves in any way possible in their place, maybe they might say right now, you just don't know how bad it is. Well, listen to what Paul says. What then shall we say of these things? Preacher, you don't know how bad my health is. What then shall we say of these things? 
preacher, you don't know how bad my job and money situation is. What then shall we say of these things? You just don't know how bad my relationships are at home. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Listen. You surely could find yourself in one of these things. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. And yet Paul says we are more than conquerors, not because we figured it out on our own, but because we are in Jesus Christ. So Christian, suffer well. That's not a very popular thing to say in America today. So let me say it again so you'll hear it. Christian, suffer well. Because by suffering well, here's what we proclaim to the world. We proclaim to the world that no matter what we face in this world, we are more than conquerors because Jesus loves us and we are in Christ. And for those who are in Christ... There is nothing that can touch us in this world. Let's pray together. God, would you help those here in this room right now who are suffering? Help them to join in with the congregation and be open and honest. Let them be sanctified through it. Identify with Christ in it, but know that can separate them from the love of Christ. We pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world today recognize live in a land currently at least with minimal suffering relative to that that others are experiencing we pray god that they too would suffer well for the sake of the gospel of jesus help us god fix our minds on christ recognizing that in him we are more than conquerors we pray in jesus name amen